see you. Thanks for being here tonight, especially if you are perhaps wor worshiping with us, uh, maybe for the first time tonight. Maybe you came with family or friends, maybe visiting uh, on this uh, Easter weekend. We're really glad that you are here. I notice some of you over here are shining a little bit more than normally. Uh, and uh, so I'm only going to preach for about 90 minutes. So <laughs> you won't have to squint for very long at all. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's third book in the New Testament. Words will be up on the screen behind as well, so you can follow along there. Luke chapter 23, just reading five verses tonight. Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 44 and going through 49. You can follow along as I read Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, the Gospel of Luke records the death of Jesus in just a very small amount of words, just a few words, in fact. Yet these few words that I just read for us are packed with significance. They're, they're packed with importance for us and we're here tonight because we want to think a little bit specifically about the death of Jesus on the cross now for some of us here may, maybe maybe for many of us here the, the whole subject of death the mention of death is is actually pretty uncomfortable it might make us squirm a little bit I mean who really wants to talk and think about death and we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of energy, a lot of money these days ignoring death, evading death, uh, cheating death, minimizing death. If we don't have to talk about it, well, let's not. We don't really have a high need to think about anyone's death. And we, we really don't want to think about our own death one day either. But death is a problem for all of us. In fact, death is, is a problem. It's our biggest problem. Just hang around a hospital for a little while or a funeral home and you will be confronted with that reality and you'll be confronted with the reality of sometimes the painful ugliness of death. Friends, the statistics don't lie. Every year, worldwide, 65 million people die. That's roughly about 178,000 people every day, about 120 people every minute somewhere on this planet dies. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So perhaps you're here tonight and you think, you know, could, could we just push play on our favorite Disney movie and just put blinders on and call it good? Well, actually you can. In The Lion King, Simba's father says, speaking of death, you see, it's all part of the circle of life. There's nothing unusual about death. It's just the next step of growth. It's the next stage of life. Well, there we have it. Death is no big deal. Your death, my death, 
anybody's death. There's nothing unusual. It's the circle of life. And perhaps, maybe as we leave here tonight, we should all circle up and quietly hum that song. But we have a gnawing sense that that can't be right. That, that can't be right. And there are a lot of bad ideas about death that actually have nothing to do with the Disney movie. In 1910, King Edward VII of England caught a cold, developed bronchitis, then pneumonia. He was dead within a week. And at his funeral, the, the canon of St. Paul's Cathedral, so the canon was basically the, the leader, the, the church official, in front of thousands of people, said this, death is nothing at all. I have only slipped away into the next room. Life means all that it ever meant. It is the same as it ever was. Is that what happens? We just slip into the next room? There's actually probably more truth in what Simba's father said than what this famous church leader said about death. But both of them fall woefully short. Neither of them come close at all to, to the biblical teaching on death. And neither of them really help us understand the importance of one man's death. The death of Jesus on the cross. Death is a very normal part of life. Friends, you know that. I know that. It's all around us. Death is so very ordinary. It's ordinary. So you might wonder, why should we spend concentrated time tonight thinking about and being concerned about just one man's death? I mean, out of, out of all the millions upon millions of people who have died throughout the centuries... What's so significant about the death of Jesus on the cross? Well, Luke tells us that the death of Jesus was not just another number. It wasn't just another name on a death certificate. In fact, the death of Jesus was no ordinary death because he died as no ordinary man. Something extraordinary, extraordinary happened in the death of Jesus. And Luke tells us, in fact, that there are three extraordinary uh, things to notice, to, to be aware of as we consider the death of Jesus tonight. Here's the first thing. The death of Jesus was unique. It was unique. This is verses 44 and 45. Luke records this. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, 2,000 years ago, Romans ruled much of the world, and their preferred method of execution was crucifixion. It was used for hundreds of years. It was used on slaves. It was used on pirates. It was used on rebels. Basically, anybody that Rome deemed was not fit to live, that was a criminal, would be deserving of death, and they would crucify them. So thousands of criminals were crucified every year. Yet out of all of them, we, we only remember one tonight. And out of the, the thousands of crucifixions that took place over the centuries, well, what's so different or unique about the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, when you read what Luke records here, you soon understand that this was no ordinary crucifixion. What took place here is so significant, in fact, that the sun itself refused to shine for three hours. 
And when the sun was supposed to shine at its brightest, that is high noon, 12 o'clock, there was actually complete darkness in the land. That's not normal. There's no, this can't be an ordinary crucifixion. This can't be an ordinary man who's dying. This isn't an ordinary crucifixion. And the Hebrew prophets had foretold throughout the centuries that a day like this was to come. A day that they referred to as the day of the Lord. A day of judgment. And so we read in Amos chapter 8 verse 9. In that day declares the sovereign Lord. I will make the sun go down at noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight. Now this is just one of of many, really hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that, that spoke of that day. A, a day in which God would come in power, a day in which God would come in judgment. And so that darkness that Luke described here, that darkness over the land as Jesus hung on the cross, that is the outpouring of God's wrath. His righteous wrath, his righteous anger against the sin of humanity. So God in his judgment is, is judging humanity's sin. And Jesus in his body is absorbing all the wrath, the righteous wrath of God the Father on himself. So you understand then that the, the greatest suffering that Jesus knows, the greatest suffering that Jesus knows on the cross is the wrath of his heavenly Father being poured out on him for your sins and for mine. So when Jesus hung on that cross, that, that day of judgment, that, that day of reckoning had come. Something that had been spoken about by the prophets for centuries had now arrived. Something that would forever change the course of human history. Something with worldwide cosmic implications was occurring. Literally something that was shaking the earth to its foundation was taking place. When Jesus died on the cross. And that's why Luke says in verse 45 that the curtain of the, the temple was, was torn in two. Now in the temple, a veil or curtain separated the, the holy place from the most holy place. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And he could only do it once a year. And he, he only uh, could do it with, with blood that he offered for himself and then for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. But now, as Jesus hung on the cross, that, that curtain is torn in two. That veil was ripped open from top to bottom. So again, here, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Because of that, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. So friends, there's, there's no way that people like us, even on our good days, even on our best days, there's no way that sinners like us could get anywhere near that most holy place to have our sins atoned for. Unholy people don't mix with an eminently holy God. Unholy people like us have no business being anywhere near the temple, let alone the most holy place. We don't deserve to be there. We can't do enough works to somehow manage to get in, in front of the line like we can earn merit points and 
kind of be at the front of the line. There's our ticket. No, it doesn't work like that. There's only one way that people like us can have access to that most holy place, to the, to the place where our sins can be atoned for, where we can be forgiven, where God can cleanse our conscience, and that is by the blood of Jesus. His death on the cross assured that. His death on the cross guaranteed that. To be sure, this was an ordinary death. As Jesus hung on the cross, the, the sun stopped shining, the, the temple was thrown into upheaval, and God the Father was bringing about his divine plan of salvation. So the death of Jesus was no ordinary death. It was unique in every sense of the word. Second, Luke tells us that the death of Jesus was voluntary. It was voluntary. Verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, if it's hard for us to think about death and dying, and it is, I think it's even harder for us to get our heads around such a violent, grotesque, and primitive death such was crucifixion. I mean, crucifixion was designed for maximum pain, maximum suffering, maximum humiliation. It was so painful and gruesome that the Romans had to invent a new word to describe it, excruciating, out of the cross. It's pain so intense, so immense, so all-encompassing that, that even Roman citizens dare not speak of it with each other. And Matthew, in his gospel, he tells us that when Jesus was crucified, the Roman soldiers divided his garments and they cast lots it's very interesting they, they cast lots what matthew was referring to there was in fact a game that roman soldiers used to play oftentimes while somebody was hanging on the cross so they played it at the foot of the cross in the roman army there's a lot of boredom there's a lot of waiting around for people to die and so they developed all kinds of games that they would play in fact, archaeologists have actually found game boards among uh, the stone in, in the ancient ruins. So they developed a game. It was called the King's Game. And soldiers would roll the dice on this game board, the playing board. They would uh, pick one of their own, and they would call him king. And they'd give him a robe, and they'd give him a scepter, and they'd put a crown on him, and they would pay homage to him they'd bow down to him they would they would worship him and during the course of the day the soldiers would gamble for all of his possessions his clothes his wife his home in rome sometimes culminating in gambling for who would get to actually kill that new recruit so the king's game became so sadistic and horrific that the roman caesars actually prohibited their soldiers from playing it because they they found it detrimental to morale. No kidding. It caused the loss of some good soldiers. As the true king, King Jesus, was being crucified on the cross, dying in agony, in excruciating pain, Roman soldiers are playing a game. Right beneath him. Now why do I say that? It would be one thing for Jesus to suffer this kind of agonizing excruciating death on the cross because he actually was a criminal because he did deserve it 
or, or at the very least, because he was just a helpless victim. There, there were just forces, the Roman government, the soldiers. They, he had no choice. They, were just, they just overpowered him. But the amazing thing is, and all the Gospels make this clear, Jesus endured everything. The whipping, the flogging, the scourging, the mocking, the ridicule, yes, even the cross, willingly, voluntarily. His death was voluntary. He didn't so much have his life taken from him as much as he freely offered it. John chapter 10, verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So when Jesus says here, friends, in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, Father, even though I am, my, my body is beaten, I'm bloodied and tortured, and even though these the, the soldiers are playing a game and they are mocking me and ridiculing me, I know that you're still in charge. And I will obey you and your will to my last earthly breath. So Jesus gave up his life, friends, because he chose to. And that was all part of God's grand plan to provide salvation for sinners. Our very redemption and salvation. Perhaps you're here tonight and you, you doubt, as we all do from time to time, does God really care about me? How do I know that God actually loves me? How do I know that God does more than just tolerate me? If we're honest, we, we all struggle with that from time to time. And, and the objective answer, well, we're not going to get very far on that if we just sort of look inward and try and figure No, there, there is an answer. Look to the cross of Christ. And keep looking to the cross of Christ. That's objectively, brothers and sisters, how you and I can know for certainty that God indeed loves us. Because God did not rescue Jesus from the cross. Instead, God rescued us through the willing, voluntary death of Jesus on that cross. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher, British preacher, in the late 1800s. He said this, on the cross, Jesus Christ looked down and saw the people he was dying for. Some cringing, some snarling, all of them clueless. And in the greatest act of strength and love in the history of the world, he stayed. He stayed on that cross no ordinary death. Jesus was no ordinary man. His death was unique. His death was voluntary. And third, Luke tells us that the death of Jesus was unjust. It was unjust, verses 47 through 49. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, eating their breath. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus dies on the cross, and the reactions are kind of mixed. They're split. 
Some of the crowd go home and they, they beat their breasts. That's an outward symbol of, of humility. Really, it's a, it's a sadness. There's such a deep, deep sadness. But there are others who, who are not quite sure what to do with this. They're not quite sure how to make sense of what they just witnessed. They're, they're more perplexed than anything. They, they walk away trying to put the pieces together. But notice the response of the centurion. Here's this Roman commanding officer. He's, he's the commanding officer at the scene. He's in command of at least 100 Roman soldiers, likely in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus. So he's the guy to make sure that Jesus really does die. And as a Roman officer, his testimony was viewed as significant. And so this Roman officer, this soldier, he's not a Jew. He's not a believer in God. He watches the crucifixion of Jesus, and he begins to do what? To praise God, concluding, certainly this man was innocent. You might have a translation of the Bible that says righteous. Sir, surely this man was, was righteous. An innocent, righteous man died on the cross that day. Now, it would be one thing to proclaim your own innocence, be one thing if Jesus, that's what we read here, that he constantly on the cross, he, he kept shouting, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. But he didn't do that. Luke tells us here that the purity, the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus was recognized by the man who was in charge of making sure that he was killed. Yeah, the death of Jesus was, was unjust. So every word from Jesus here that we read, every word from him on the cross was loaded with significance. Verse 46, again, Jesus calls out and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting Psalm 31. It's a psalm of David. It's a psalm, in fact, where, where David is being treated unjustly, where David is suffering unjustly. So David prays that God would deliver him from his enemies. So David there in Psalm 31 is an innocent sufferer. But he's a sufferer who expresses great confidence that God would deliver him, that God would vindicate him. So David prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's, it's a profound statement of trust in God from David, even as he is mistreated, even as he is suffering unjustly. So when Jesus quotes from Psalm 31 there, David's words on the cross, he's doing so much more than just quoting from a verse that he just memorized the last week. No, he's claiming to be an innocent sufferer. In fact, he's claiming to be the ultimate innocent sufferer. And he's entrusting himself to God, just as David did in the face of death. He's submitting himself to God. He's surrendering his will to God with Full confidence, full assurance that God would vindicate him. That God would deliver him. To be sure, he dies unjustly. He's completely righteous. He's completely innocent. He committed no sin. And even the Roman centurion, this high-level Roman centurion, this soldier in charge of the crucifixion knew that. He got it. The innocent died in the place of the guilty on that cross. Now, if all this talk about 
death, all this talk about the death of Jesus makes you squirm a little bit and makes you feel a little uncomfortable. You're probably not going to have warm fuzzies thinking too much about all of your guilt for all of your sin either. I get it. Yet the death of Jesus really only begins to make sense in light of our sin. And so the prophet Isaiah, in a passage that Pastor Paul read earlier tonight, makes it clear what happened on the cross. The innocent died for the guilty. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus suffered in excruciating agony on the cross. Not for his own sins. Not because he was powerless. Not because he was a helpless victim at the hands of the Romans. But he did it willingly. Voluntarily. In obedience to God the Father, knowing that his death would purchase your salvation and mine. So all of our sins are on that cross. So when you lost it this last week with your kids, your angry outburst, Jesus died for you. That's on the cross. Your envy of your neighbor's stuff or car. Jesus died for that. It's on the cross. Your lack of love for your enemies. Jesus died for that. It's on the cross. Jesus put all of your sins and mine on his cross. No ordinary death. He's no ordinary man. I mean, death itself is, is awful, but when we consider the death of a righteous man, the death of a sinless man, it's, it's almost unspeakable. It's, it's more awful than awful. So maybe you wonder, when something that awful happens, where's God? When something as awful as the sinless son of God being crucified for sins that he did not commit, I mean, the cross was the most horrific event in all of human history. Where's God when something that horrific is taking place? Well, Luke reminds us here that God was right there. God was present even in the most horrific of earthly moments for Jesus. God is the one that, in fact, rips the veil, the curtain, torn in two and Jesus on that cross and trust his life and his death into the hands of his heavenly father. So yes, his death was all part of God's plan, all part of God's good eternal purposes. It was all part of God's plan to bring salvation for us, for people in desperate need of rescue and of redemption. Eternal life then is God's free gift to all those who trust in the blood of Jesus for their sins. That's the offer. It's yours for the taking. John Stott, another British pastor, wrote this. 
I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs rent, brow bleeding from thorn picks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. That is the God for me. Is Jesus the God for you? Have you turned, actually, to that suffering Savior who bore the wrath of God on your behalf? I mean, let's face it, death is all around us. Can't escape it. But through the death of that one man, Jesus on the cross, you can actually experience eternal life. Have you turned from your sins? Have you repented of your sins and put all your trust in the blood of Jesus for you? If you're here tonight and you say, Jesus, yes, he, he is my God, then you have every reason for hope. You have every reason for joy, no matter how hard, no matter how painful or confusing your life is tonight. Don't think for a moment, friends, that the crucifixion of Jesus was the end of the story. That wasn't the end for Jesus, praise God. But in order to get the hope, the joy, the, the peace of Easter Sunday, the sinless Savior must suffer and die on Good Friday. And in order for you to know the true hope and the joy of Easter Sunday, well, you you have to know something of the misery of your sins, your great need for a Savior, and the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for you. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, there are no words, really, moments such as this, so I pray that your word would have landed on soft hearts here. I ask, Lord, that we would not leave here unchanged, but that whatever it is, the, the work that you have called us to do, the, perhaps it is of repenting of sin, of coming close to you, of abiding in you way more, of trusting you way more than we do. Or whatever it is, that work that you have for each one of us, the change. God, make that happen, I pray. In Jesus' name.